Uh, we're supposed to start uh, Paul's letter to the Romans today. This uh, will take a, I want to go over a lot of things before we actually get into the text. Uh, there's a lot uh, I think it would do as well to uh, give some thought to before we begin. Uh, in my opinion, this is probably one of the most challenging letters in the New Testament to, uh, to come to an understanding of. It's, uh, it's one of the most uh, poorly represented letters in all the New Testament, except probably for the Revelation. But uh, so many uh, doctrines come out of the book of Revelation, or Romans rather, that uh, are not true. So we want to go over it uh, slowly and uh, make sure we understand it as, as well as, as possible. So uh, we'll, do a, we'll do a little uh, beginning work before we get into the letter. Uh, to break it down, I broke it down in uh, the purpose of uh, four or five sections here, uh, five I believe, and uh, what the, the text is about. The first five chapters is gonna be about deliverance. Okay, deliverance from uh, sin, of course. <clears throat> uh, in the first three chapters, both Jew and Gentile need to be made righteous because both of these groups stand guilty before God. Uh, you wanna keep in mind that Rome, they had a, a fairly large size congregation. Uh, it, it started back after Pentecost in Acts chapter two. A lot of those folks went back home and uh, established a church there in the city of Rome. And uh, since that time, apparently, they made a lot of converts. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, evenly populated by both Jew and Gentile. And there was a bit of a rift between the two groups in the church. It wasn't anything dramatic, but uh, they hadn't gotten over old wounds. You know, the Jew and the Gentile uh, never did get along well, and now uh, in the church, they're getting along uh, to some degree. But uh, the Jew looked at the Gentile, the Gentile looked at the Jew as being an inferior class, even in the church, uh, because uh, the other group, um, uh, well, for example, the Gentiles had always been heathen, and from the Gentile position, uh, they saw the Jew as uh, being failures. They had the opportunity to be the people of God, and they failed. They had been uh, cut off uh, of the tree, whereas the Gentiles had been grafted in. So they thought they had a leg up on the Jews, and they both looked at each other this way. And uh, when, what you're gonna see Paul spend a lot of time doing is showing both groups, uh, you know, you got nothing to brag about, folks. <laughs> you, you may be a Jew, but you're sinning, and you're sinners. And uh, as far as the Gentiles concerned, uh, you may feel like you got a leg up on the Jews because you've been grafted into the tree of God, the body of God, um, that's not true either. Uh, yeah, the Jews failed, but you know, you Gentiles failed too. So uh, they all had their problems, and this is what Paul's going to spend a lot of time in this letter addressing. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much uh, misunderstanding about the purpose of the letter in the various texts, is that uh, preachers, theologians, you know, people who studied scriptures a lot, uh, they, they come to the conclusion that this is a, a letter uh, just like any other letter. 
It's not. It's, uh, it's written specifically to the church at Rome for a specific reason with a specific problem that they had. And Paul's going to be addressing that problem. A lot of times he's going to be talking about the law. He's going to talk about the law of Moses. Sometimes he'll talk about the law. He'll t be talking about the law in general. Sometimes he'll be talking about the law. He'll talk about the law that the Gentiles were amenable to before the uh, advent of Christ. So you, you've got to keep in mind that these two groups need a lot of instruction and, and basic information. And uh, Paul's going to spend a lot of time tutoring each group. He'll switch back and forth. He'll talk to the Jew a while. He'll talk to the Gentile. He'll talk to the Jew. But uh, you can see it <clears throat> if you keep in mind uh, the purpose of the letter. You'll see it as he makes his transitions uh, as we go through the letter. The key word here is going to be the word righteous, to be righteous. The word righteous has got a lot of different meanings, uh, applications, I should say got one basic meaning but it's got several applications in the Bible uh, and uh, we'll go over that uh, shortly as we proceed uh, the second section Romans 6 7 and 8 uh, has to do with victory they they are victorious over the world uh, in the fact that they are Christians they have overcome uh, the world but there, there's questions uh, in in people's mind number one how can God pronounce sinners guilty how can he just do that? It, does he do that arbitrarily? How does God do that? Does he measure a person's worth? Does he, does he gauge people by their accomplishments? You know, uh, all of our lives, uh, we're taught uh, to gauge people according to their accomplishments. Used to, when I worked and uh, had to write reviews, uh, I would have to gauge people according to what they had done. Uh, that's kind of the way you, you grow up thinking. Uh, if, if you want uh, much, you got to do much. If you want to get ahead, you got to work hard. Uh, we, we work for what we get. Uh, it's not going to be handed to, well, today it will, but back then it wasn't handed to us. You had to actually work for it. And uh, it, it's hard uh, to get out of that mode when you're thinking about uh, righteousness or, 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 or justification, how can God pardon a person? How does he do it? And then uh, to forgive sin and maintain his righteousness and adequate payment, the word propitiation doesn't appear just twice, I think, in all the New Testament, but it's an important word. Uh, it means the equivalent of payment. Uh, um, if you get a speeding ticket and you go to court and the judge says it cost you $125, the $125 propitiation for your crime, breaking the speed law. Uh, Jesus is propitiation for people's sin. Okay, he's the payment. Uh, he, he's the, the fine that is paid uh, for our sakes. It's an important word. Uh, the principle of propitiation comes up often throughout the letter. And uh, we'll need to keep that one in mind, too. Uh, oh, well, I got it here. I don't know what this is. I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, you have a transgression, then there's the cost for the transgression. You get a speeding ticket, there's the price to be paid for the speeding ticket. Uh, it's a payment or a fine, however you want to think of it. Uh, Romans 6, 22, 23, rather, the wages 
of the transgression is uh, death. Uh, when you sin against uh, the Creator, uh, the penalty for your crime is death. There has to be a death. In other words, to pay for your crime, your fine is going to be at least a death. You've, uh, you've earned death, and it'll take death uh, to uh, justify you, to redeem you from your crimes. So there's a life that's going to be involved in the payment for sin. Uh, that's the propitiation, is that life. Uh, animals, that's one of the things that the Old Testament was designed to teach, that animals uh, weren't sufficient. People offered animals uh, all the time. Abraham offered animals. Adam and Eve offered uh, animals. Uh, since the beginning, uh, when sin first occurred, there's always been a blood sacrifice every year to uh, pay the price of sin. The problem was it didn't pay the price of sin. It rolled it forward a year is the way we usually phrase it. Uh, God overlooked that person's sin until the next year, and then that sin would come up as a memorial before God again. You're guilty all over again. So you offer another animal sacrifice. All your life you have to do that time and time and time again. What do you learn? Well, you learn that the blood of animals isn't sufficient to pay uh, the penalty for, for uh, sin. There has to be something else. Hebrews 10, 4 through 6 addresses that. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Human beings are... Uh, superior to bulls and goats. Therefore, uh, the blood of a bull or goat isn't going to atone for what should be a human death. Uh, it's going to take something uh, more than that. Uh, man, what about man? Uh, well, you can't offer up man because that's the equivalent of the sinner. Uh, they're, they're, it's not going to uh, justify a person uh, because uh, you have a human sacrifice, that's not going to atone for people's sin. Uh, at, at best, all a person could do is break even with herself, but you can't even do that because the penalty for sin is higher than that. So you got animals, blood of animals, that won't work. You got the blood of man, that won't work. It's going to have to be God. If there's going to be redemption, it's going to take God to be the redeemer. He has to be the one uh, that becomes propitiation for sin. So God would have to take it upon himself. Now, all this was known to God before the foundation of the world. As a matter of fact, these things were discussed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before God created the heavens and the earth. All these matters were worked out, and the decision was made to the fact that God would become a, a blood sacrifice for human sin. And then God created the heavens and the earth. There was no surprise. The Lord went into it with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what it was going to cost him to give us uh, life because we're sinners. It's our fault, uh, but God was willing to uh, make the sacrifice because uh, he loved us. He did, not all people, but some people. 
and whatever the number of people it is that God loves, uh, those are the people that uh, he was willing to die for. Now, don't misunderstand me. God loved the world in the sense that he offered up Jesus so that all people would have an opportunity to be saved. Uh, God willed man good. I've given you an opportunity to get off of death row, okay, but it's up to you to do it. And most people, as we know, they're not going to do it. Uh, but as far as those who uh, do believe on Jesus, uh, God has uh, a more personal love for those folks. In the Greek text, it's called phileo, and it means uh, it's, it's a, a love of uh, feeling, desire, emotion. Like a, a man feels to her wife, his wife or you feel towards your kids. It's an emotional love. Now, God doesn't have that for the world, but he does have it for believers. He has that uh, strong attachment. So man wasn't um, of the right value to atone for uh, sin. Now, you got to keep in mind that the creator is the one uh, that, number one, determines what transgression is, <clears throat> and number two, determines what the fine's going to be. Uh, he's the one that determines it himself. Uh, God didn't offer up Jesus because he had to, but because he wanted to. It was his choice or decision. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, in the American Standard Version, which uh, is by far more accurate as far as this verse is concerned, uh, said that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. A key word there is a counsel. You know what a counsel is. Uh, a counsel is more than one person. Okay, it's a group. Uh, we've got city council. Okay, they come together and they make decisions that affect the city. Well, here we're talking about a divine council, okay? Uh, the council of God. Well, that would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined that one member of the Godhead would be offered up as a sacrifice for human sin, and that person was uh, the Lord Jesus, of course. But you need to keep in mind everything involved because it was Jesus' decision. He was part of the three involved uh, to offer, let himself be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. So uh, that's, uh, that's who the propitiation is, and that's why he's the propitiation. Uh, when he came into the world, this is from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, uh, when he came into the world, Jesus, he said, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire. They didn't, they didn't work, nor had pleasure in them. They were a, a teacher for humanity. Uh, the Lord knew it wasn't going to work, but he wanted people to learn that blood was required to cover sin. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Uh, he's talking there about the two covenants. This, of course, took place when Jesus died. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, 
that uh, the law was nailed to the cross. He took away the first covenant, the covenant God made with Moses, in order to establish the second covenant, and that would be the covenant established by Jesus Christ. Okay, I have come to do your will. And one of the things that happened, of course, was he was offered up as a blood sacrifice. You remember um, uh, when the Lord died, the last thing he said was, it is finished. What was he talking about? He said, I came to do your will. It is finished. I've done everything God has asked of me. Now, of course, he as God was part of that decision. I've done everything I was required to do by the council that met for the foundation of the world. It's not too hard uh, to understand. Uh, it just means you got to move around the whole Bible a whole lot and put everything together. Uh, by that will now, the second covenant, we have been sanctified, uh, purified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus didn't offer up his soul. He only offered up his body. A distinction is made. That's one of the reasons, too, he had to put on a body. John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you drop down to verse 14, and the Word put on flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, Jesus, as the Word, before he came into the world, Jesus put on flesh so he would have blood to offer a sacrifice. God is a spirit. He doesn't have blood. Therefore, to offer up the blood of God, God had to become a man. And he lived among men. He had to be tempted as we are in all points, but do so without sin in order to qualify to be uh, the sacrifice for our sins. All these things run together. They're all involved in uh, what took place. And that's one of the reasons why, no doubt, the Lord was so circumspect in his life. He was extremely careful uh, to, uh, to avoid sin and to always do the will of the Father, even when he didn't want to. Remember, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go through that crucifixion. If there's any other way, if there's any way at all besides that way, you know, let's go that route, you know, get shot in the head or something. Anything's better than scourging the crucifixion. If it's possible, let that pass from me and take another route. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's all that mattered to him in the end. He went through everything that you and I did. He experienced fear. Uh, he, 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 had, he had concern. He had worry. He went through everything that you and I did. But in the final analysis, whatever it was the Father that wanted him to do, he did it. I had somebody ask me the other day if it's a sin to worry. Of course not. If it is, we're all sinning because we all do worry. Worry is, you know, it's part of life. The thing about the, the winners and the losers is the person who, who worries, which is everybody, those who don't let worry keep them from doing what the Lord would have them to do, they're the winners, okay? Sure, there's going to be concern. Jesus was concerned. He didn't want to go through that crummy death. But that was the only way it could be done. So he did it. Okay. And you and I, we, we learn from him so many things uh, that we really need to know because we see uh, 
perfection uh, in his life. By that will we have been sanctified, made holy, purified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ one time for all time, once for all. One time for all time. That's the meaning of it. <clears throat> the history is the next section. There's a review of history, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a head thing going on. <clears throat> Has God been fair? That's a question that would naturally come up. Uh, especially in the Jewish mind, I'm sure. Uh, was God righteous in his treatment of Israel? These are questions that's going to pop up in the mind of Jewish people. Uh, we were God's covenant people. You know, is it fair for God just to cut us off? Is it fair that you know, we have to uh, obey the gospel? Believe on Jesus, be baptized for remission of sins? Is that really fair? We've been the covenant of people for 1,500 years now. They got questions whether God is righteous in his treatment of Israel. Paul will address that, and he'll show them how God was fair. The problem is, and this is something that's pointed out again in the letter time and time again, is that God alone can determine what is fair and unfair. People, uh, so many times people get themselves into trouble uh, because they gauge fair, unfair, right, and wrong by what they think, what they feel. You know, I, I don't think. You got to watch that thinking stuff. It gets you in trouble. Uh, the Lord has told us <clears throat> everything about him that he wants us to know, that we need to know. He's told us what's fair and unfair. He's told us what's righteous and unrighteous. Uh, he told us uh, everything that we need to know. And sometimes the Lord has said, okay, I, there was a woman. Uh, it's been several years ago. Uh, we were talking about uh, hell, Gehenna hell. And uh, she said, do you really believe God would send people to hell? I said, well, he said he would. She, I don't believe he'd really do that. You think he's lying about it? <laughs> well, what, what's, what are you thinking? He said he would. Either he will or he won't. If he won't, he's told, he's told us a lie. Now, where are you going to come down? You're going to come down with the Lord? You're going to come down with your own opinion? Hell's a terrible place to think about. Eternal, lake of fire, my goodness. I can't imagine anybody taking pleasure in that. And when we love people who were not prepared to live with God in eternity, uh, we, we can lose a whole lot of sleep over it. But does my wishing it was different change anything? Does my saying it is different change anything? A woman one time wanted to become a Christian, but she's afraid to. Her mama was a member of a denomination. Her, her daddy was a member of the Lord's Church. Her daddy was dead. Her mama was alive. And uh, I talked to her about becoming a Christian. And she was afraid if she did, it would, would hurt her mama's feelings. Because she was a member of a denomination. Her mama might think she was siding with her daddy. 
I said, what you need to do is become a Christian. If it comes up, you tell her that you were siding with the Lord. You didn't side with your daddy. You didn't side with your mama. You just sided with the Lord. I said, if you continue living the way you are, you're going to be no source of encouragement to your mama to take a good hard look at her religious life and to see where she stands in relationship to God. You, you have no, nothing to add to her at all. But if you were to become a Christian, then you will set an example and you'll be in a position where you can speak to your mama about what the Lord wants us to do. And in so doing, you can be a positive influence in your mom's life. Uh, thankfully, she, she, she obeyed the gospel. I would love to say her mama did, but so far she hasn't. But, uh, but that was the way she was thinking. Sometimes we think sideways. We got to be careful about that. It may not seem fair to me. You know, Abraham offered up his son. What in the world went through his mind? Kill your own son? Killing's a sin. You can't go around killing people. Sure can't kill your own son. I love my son. I don't want to kill my son. And you got to offer up your own son. How could God ask me to do such a thing? God doesn't really want me to do that. I could see me talking myself right out of it. Abraham did. The Lord commanded it, and he did it. Same as did it. Because the Lord stopped him, <clears throat> he was testing the faith of Abraham. See what kind of faith he had, and he had all kinds of faith. Uh, Abraham did what we have to do. He he put a, he put aside his reasoning. If the Lord told me to do it, then that's what I need to do, and let the Lord take care of the circumstances. In Abraham's mind, he. He was going to resurrect Isaac after Abraham put him to death. He'd just raise him back to life. That's what Abraham thought. Abraham was wrong, but he, he came down to the point where, you know, the Lord knows what he's doing. And you got to trust God. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Instead of thinking too much and feeling too much, you just follow the will of God. And let God take care of what comes afterwards. And that's hard. I mean, you think about it. Think about where Abraham was. That's really, really hard. And sometimes it's hard for us. You know, you've you got to speak to somebody about the Lord and you don't want to. Not because you hate him, because I don't know how to do that. I remember the first time I had a home study with somebody. I shook so bad I couldn't stand it. Me and VR went together. If I had meant for her, I don't think I'd have gotten through it. Uh, that's back in the days when we used Jewel Miller film strips. Uh, I just, uh, I just trembled all over the place. Second time I trembled too. Third time, <laughs> I don't know how many times or how many people I went to before I stopped trembling so bad. Uh, but it took a while. Same thing with preaching. First time I preached, ten-minute sermon, all at eight minutes. I mean, you're scared. Of course, everybody's scared. Uh, but what are you going to do? Are you going to allow your emotions to stop you from doing what you know you're supposed to do? 
Or are you going to do the best you can do and let the Lord take care of everything else? Are you going to make a mess out of it? Join the club. I made a mess out of a lot of stuff. That's, uh, that's part of life. We've got we to gotta crawl before we can walk. And it's just not easy. But that's how you build faith. You know, we build faith through the Word of God. Okay? But we also add to our faith by living the will of God. We, we get, we become more and more what we ought to be, what the Lord wants us to be. So this is what Paul addresses in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Was God fair? And if so, how, how was he fair? What makes him fair? God is the only objective standard of right and wrong, fair and unfair. There is no other. You know, that's an argument that proves the existence of God. You and I are moral people. The question is, where did morality come from? Well, the atheist will say it comes from man. Think about how silly that is. If morality comes from man, then every man is a moral law unto himself. In other words, I determine what's right and wrong for myself. You determine what's right and wrong for yourself. If you got a car and I want your car, I can shoot you and take your car. If I've done anything wrong, I haven't done anything wrong. There's been debate, there's been trials over this where people have committed crimes. And the argument was they had the right to commit the crime because they believed it was morally right for them to do it. I don't think anybody's ever gotten off on that, but it's been tried time and again. Uh, atheists have been teaching that in school for the last 100 years. They've been teaching this about the moral law to a lot of impressionable young people. And of course, uh, more and more people as you go along starts to believe this kind of stuff. I don't think anybody wants to live in a world where man is the standard of morality. We can't stand that, and he's not. There's only one that could be the objective standard of morality, and it has to be someone that's not attached to this world, is not a part of this world. And that, of course, will be God. And God is the only moral standard. Therefore, you prove on this point the existence of God because morality exists. And he's the only plausible explanation where morality could have come from, unless you want to get into a hellish type of society. Israel's present rejection is justified and temporary. He'll point that out too. Israel is rejected by God and God is justifying, justified in rejecting her. God has not abandoned his covenant people, quite to the contrary. He hasn't failed his previous commitments, quite to the contrary. God is fulfilling his promises and commitments to Israel. He's not breaking them. Paul will explain all that to him. When we get a whole lot of explanation going on. The next part is uh, community, the final part. Uh, well, no, I got one more thing. Uh, the church, Romans 12 through 16, Paul will talk about the church as a community. Individual Christians are to live righteous lives, point one and point two. Christians that it's a community are called to live together as a righteous, loving family. Paul talks about that for four chapters. And it's uh, an important, important point. Uh, the community of Christ is the equivalent of the Church of Christ. Uh, okay, here we got three, 
three ways of seeing the church. Number one, there's the local church uh, in your text here to the church, which is at Corinth. Corinth was a church. It was a complete church. Center Grove's a church. It's a complete church. We don't need any other churches to make us whole. We are whole in and of ourselves. We've got the government that the Lord wants us to have. We have elders and deacons, preachers and teachers. Okay, we're, we're set up the way the Lord wants us to be set up. We're uh, autonomous for all, from all other churches. Uh, we can't dictate the rules for the church down here at McCoinsville, and McCoinsville can't dictate the rules for us up here at Center Grove. We're autonomous in that sense. Uh, each congregation governs itself under, of course, the oversight of God. Uh, but uh, in the sectarian churches, you know, you got, uh, you may have a thousand churches under one super church or under one board or, or under one committee of deacons or something. That's not the New Testament pattern. The New Testament pattern calls for autonomous churches, each one being self-governing. The logic and reason of it's easy to see. If uh, the church at Center Grove, for example, was to apostatize, we can't order a thousand churches to apostatize along with us because nobody is amenable to what we believe uh, ought to be the rules that govern us. Uh, in, a, in a sectarian church, uh, the headship of the church, the Catholic church, for example, the Pope can di direct all of the churches. If he apostatizes, he can cause all the churches to apostatize. If we apostatize, then we, we apostatize but we don't affect any other congregations. It's what we've chosen to do, and we just have to be apostates. The second way, the church is talked about in a regional sense. Uh, Paul writes a letter to the churches of Galatia. You can write a letter to the churches of Jackson County, to the churches of Tennessee, to the churches of the United States. Okay, you, you can speak of the church in a reasonable sense, and then finally, the church, of course, is spoken of in the universal sense. It's Catholic in nature. Uh, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He was speaking about the church in the sense of Catholic, which means one. There's one church, and that, of course, was his church. So there's, there's three ways that the church is expressed. Uh, in scriptures, Paul discusses uh, uh, some of these things in Romans 12 through 16. I believe uh, we're out of time. I thought we'd get through this whole thing. Uh, next week, God willing, uh, I'm going to spend some time on uh, the rest of this outline. Uh, it's tedious to do this kind of study. It's tedious to write all this stuff. <laughs> It's tedious to study all this stuff. But if you, if you can understand these things, uh, it makes it so much more easy to interpret the scriptures as, as you pass through them. Now, the outline, uh, if you want, I can make you copies of the outline. Uh, 
on paper and you can have it uh, if you uh, care to have it. Uh, well, we ain't got to it yet. That's what's coming up next. But if you care to have one, uh, let Relin know and I'll, uh, well, me or Relin, and uh, I'll make you a copy of it. Or Relin will. Relin's my hero. But uh, we'll start here, Lord willing, next Sunday. <laughs> 